Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, it's good to be with you guys. This is episode 61, Forgiveness, Justice, and Cancel Culture. I just want to say real quick before we get started, if this content, this podcast, or the work that I produce is helpful to you, I would love for you to do two things. First, go to Amazon and pre-order my next book, Cultural Counterfeits, Confronting Five Empty Promises of Our Age and How We Were Made for So Much More. That book comes out in March of 2022, and the pre-orders would be so helpful. Secondly, maybe if you would be willing, go to your podcast app and leave this show a rating and a review as that helps get the word out. Okay, well, without further ado, as you guys know, this podcast is about current events and cultural trends. So on this episode, I want to talk about a trend that we are all seeing. You know you know what it is based on the title of this episode. There's just this increasing polarity amongst us, this tribalism, this tendency that we're, we all have to retreat to our corners. There's this increasing demand on all sides for wrongs to be made right, but on our own terms. We're seeing across culture, across society, just a lack or an unwillingness to have conversations, to have nuance, to engage one another, to really um, have deep communication with people on the quote, other side of the things that we believe. There's sort of a requirement on each side in each camp to see things our own way. And if you can't see things from our perspective, then you're canceled. This is cancel culture. And we're seeing it on both ends of the cultural or the political spectrum. It's not as if it's only happening on the right or it's only happening on the left. We're all doing it to each other all the time. I think conservatives are reluctant or refuse to forgive or to extend grace because it feels like they are then compromising the truth. And then I think progressives are refusing to forgive or to extend grace because to them, that feels like they are permitting injustice then or furthering injustice. So on the right or the left, it feels like a compromise, compromising the truth or permitting injustice. On both extremes, on both sides, there's this refusal to engage. There's a refusal to meet halfway or maybe a refusal even to forgive where that's appropriate. There's this um, unwillingness to sort of acknowledge that the other side could be right or that maybe in some ways their views are valid. What we see instead is that each side seeks to so demonize the other side that they can hardly see one another as human beings. They hardly see the other side as worthy of dignity, worthy of respect, worthy of care, worthy of love, worthy of even a conversation or forging a way forward through some kind of communication, through maybe giving the benefit of the doubt. Rather than doing that, we would much rather just cancel one another. And we're seeing it, of course, at all levels. You already know this. We see this in politics. We see this amongst corporations. We're seeing it between nations, between states. We see it between celebrities. We cancel celebrities. Certain celebrities call for the cancelization of others or musicians or actresses. We see it in academia, amongst researchers or social scientists. We see it amongst students, student bodies canceling various speakers or perspectives or books. We even see it just in community groups or locally, 
even in community clubs or community sports. And sadly, as a Christian, of course, I know that we see it in the church. We see churches cancel each other or people inside churches cancel each other. We see even denominations and conferences, speakers, authors, pastors, preachers cancel culture happening inside the church. And of course, we see it on the smallest level amongst individuals. It's happening amongst family members and friends. How many relationships have been severed over the last year or two? Even church family, siblings in Christ or siblings biologically or in their families, just writing one another off, demanding agreement or else. And of course, you know this already, social media plays a huge role, right? Social media is this convenient venue because it's quick, it's gratifying. You don't really have to um, do your research or put any skin in the game. You can just get online and publicly shame other people or be a bully. Um, The social media is just this massive and fast way for groups to force someone to back down or to feel ashamed or to um, have remorse for a view that they have maybe um, shared publicly in the past. Cancel culture is happening on all levels of society, relationships, systems, structures that are far reaching, but also in the very, the smaller, more personal and intimate relationships in our own families and in our communities. In this cultural moment, we have an insatiable appetite for justice, but we have a disdain for forgiveness, and the result is cancel culture. So on this episode, I want to ask, how did we get here? How did this happen? How did cancel culture come to be? And then what can we do about it? So the very short answer to how did we get here is we are here precisely because of the age of self. (laughs) The age of self has delivered us this cancel culture that we are living in. So let me explain. The age of self, at least in the West, has been on the rise for centuries. This is something that I delve into in my first book, Enough About Me. It's something I talk about quite a bit, but the age of self has been on the rise for centuries. It's evolved over time, but it's been especially noticeable and especially consequential over the past 100 years or so. As people in the West, we've moved away from a group identity. We've literally moved away from rural settings, community settings, where we have had a group identity based on our family or our town or our village, our farm, as our, as we have literally physically moved from community settings to urban individual settings, we've urbanized. Um, 1920 is when there were more people for the first time living in cities than in rural settings in the United States. As we have urbanized, people have moved sort of to find themselves, to seek their own identity, to forge a path forward, to self-actualize. And so group identity or family identity has taken a backseat to individual autonomy, to individual freedom. And we love freedom, don't we? Now in the U.S. or in the West, it's individual autonomy over everything else. This is our highest good. Nothing and no one should get in the way of us wanting to be our best selves. So in this age of self, we determine who we are, right? We look within, we decide who we want to be, and then we conjure up all the energy and effort and emotion to get there. And if anyone questions that identity or threatens it or criticizes it, they have then committed one of, if not the most, um, the greatest cultural sin of our age. Do not question, do not threaten my identity. This is who I've determined myself to be. This is who I've worked hard to be. And no one is allowed to threaten that. Tim Keller wrote an article that I think is really helpful um, when looking at this. He wrote it back in May, and I'll link it in my show notes, but he cites a number of recent studies and research that really help unpack how this age of self has created cancel culture. 
So um, Keller quotes theologian Gregory Jones, who says, perhaps the greatest reason that we have such impoverished contemporary understandings and practices of forgiveness in modern Western culture, if all that matters is individual autonomy, then forgiveness and reconciliation, which are designed to foster and maintain community, are of little importance. So in other words, where self is the priority over community or self is the priority over others, then what reason, what motivation do we have to forgive others or to move toward others or to have any kind of reconciliation? If my identity is of the utmost importance, then why would I forgive you when you threaten or question me? As I've argued many times, we have turned ourselves, we've turned our own identities into gods. And if others don't bow down and worship these gods, if they don't bow down and worship us, the identity that we've made for ourselves, then it's very upsetting to us. What do we do with that? So this article by Keller goes on to quote Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning. They wrote The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggression, Safe Spaces, and the New Culture Wars. And here's what they say. The therapeutic culture has converted us into a collection of self-actualizers whose primary concern is to get respect and affirmation of one's own identity. It has taught us to think of ourselves as individuals needing protection from society and from various groups with power who oppress us. So ironically, we have developed a shame and honor culture of victimhood. Keller says greater honor and moral virtue are assigned to people the more they have been victimized and oppressed by society or others and power. So to summarize, this age of self or this therapeutic age and the way it has led to council culture, we live in a time where individual autonomy is king. We, we uphold that above all else, individual freedom, individual autonomy. We determine who we are. We self-identify. We self-actualize. This to us in 2021 is more important than community. It's more important than group identity. It's more important than in a community identity or other people. But when we self-actualize, when we self-identify, we are ironically fully dependent on other people then to affirm our identity. There's no objective affirmation. There's no like absolute truth. There's no absolute authority from where or from which we derive our sense of self. We need others to affirm us. And when they don't, it's a crisis for us. And our only option then is to either question our own identity, which we are unwilling to do, or it's to cancel those who don't affirm us. And this reality creeps in and affects all of us. I think it's really easy if you're listening to this, I know it was easy for me is to sort of think, oh no, this is what happens to other people, but this happens to all of us. It's easy to think it's only on the other side, but it's right here. It's in my own heart and it's in yours. It's something that plagues both the right and the left, both conservatives and progressives. So for example, somebody on the right might think, oh, you're not a patriot. Well, you're canceled. Or you question my status or my success or my own hard work. For me, as a white person in the middle class, I've arrived here. And you question that, well, you're canceled. Or on the left, you might think, well, you don't affirm my gender identity, you're canceled. Or you're not willing to defund the police, well, you're canceled. So I know these are exaggerations or maybe they're oversimplifications, but you get the idea. We're all doing it to each other all the time rather than engaging the other side and wondering what's valid, what's legitimate from their perspective. We think, oh, you don't, you don't um, validate me. Well, then you're canceled. 
We're all in our corners and we're all safe behind the high walls that we've built for our specific camps. And we are unwilling or one, we're unable to see the validity of the other side. We're even unable to legitimize their existence. We just say, no, you don't, you don't exist. You're canceled. So I think we can all agree that cancel culture is endless, right? It's just this endless spiral. Like, where does it stop? And it's unhelpful. So how should you and I as Christ followers respond? We who belong to Jesus, where can we go from here? What can we do? Now, before I move on, I want to just insert this caveat because this is really important. This podcast episode is not a prescription for listeners who have endured abuse, especially those who have endured sexual abuse. Now, of course, physical abuse, emotional, spiritual, all various kinds of abuse, but especially my listeners who are sexual abuse survivors. This episode is speaking in general to all of us, not necessarily to your situation. I'm speaking here to this broad cultural trend where we demand justice based on our own specific views, where we are unwilling to forgive one another, one another to extend grace, where we are quick to shame or cancel other people. Um, but those who are abuse victims should seek the help of a Bible-based, gospel-saturated counselor to help them navigate healing and wholeness. Of course, justice and forgiveness is part of that equation as well, but that is a really nuanced and very specific situation that I'm not speaking to in this episode. But to the rest of us, just because forgiveness and healing and restoration process might look unique for abuse survivors doesn't mean that we can just shrug this off. There is work for us to do. We, the average American, the average American Christian, we need to be looking at ourselves in the mirror and really acknowledging where we fall short here of God's standard and how he might be admonishing us to grow and change and how the Holy Spirit might supernaturally help you and me that we might better reflect the nature of our God. Okay, so that caveat laid, the Christian culture, the Christian faith, our beliefs are really con uh, opposite of cancel culture, right? We want to be pursuing Christ, not pursuing the world. So things to keep in mind as we ask ourselves, how can we be engaging cancel culture? I want to share some spiritual truths and then some practical truths. So spiritually, as Christians, we are called to live in a way that is the very opposite of cancel culture. Forgiveness is the foundation of our faith. And we really don't have the option to be unforgiving or to demand justice in our own way and in our own time. Foundational to our faith is the perfect life of Jesus Christ. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So you and I who are in Christ, our righteousness is not our own, not at all. It was a free gift of our Savior. While we were his enemies, the Bible says, he died for us. He gave up his life for his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no demand in the gospel that we get things right, that we clean ourselves up before we can be reconciled to God. He pursued us out of no goodness of our own, but because of his goodness. So let's you and me not demand more of others than the perfect God of the universe has asked of us. It's imperative that you and I approach disagreements with humility. And I just want to insert here, and I could insert every 30 seconds on this episode. I'm preaching to myself. This is a podcast episode that I needed to record for my own heart. But we need to be approaching disagreements with humility, remembering our own sin. Remember the plank in our own eyes. If we're spending more time focusing on the speck in our brother's eyes rather than the plank in our own, then I have a feeling we're approaching disagreement um, from a worldly perspective that rather than a biblical perspective. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, 
love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Are you loving those who disagree with you? Do you pray for those who disagree with you? Paul said to the Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So think about your own sin, your own distance from your savior. How he forgave you is how he asks you to forgive others. In Matthew 18, of course, famously, the apostle Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus said, well, 70 times seven, meaning really an infinite number of times. Jesus instructed Peter, you don't have the option as my follower to stop forgiving. There's no limit on the forgiveness that I'm asking you to extend others. So Christians, we are a people of grace. There really is no other way for you and me. We have to remember that no one is beyond God's reach. Remember Paul, he was a murderer. People are not the sum of either their good deeds or their worst sins. Let us not attach people's sins to their identity and say they can never move beyond that. They'll never be better than that. It is always, always our job to reconcile. We don't have another option. And I want to say here that this is not a glossing over of sin. No, forgiveness is actually the very opposite of that. Forgiveness is an act of acknowledging where you've been hurt, acknowledging where you've been wronged, and then laying yourself down. It's a letting go of a payment that you're due. It's making that payment yourself rather than demanding it from the debtor. So it's not at all pretending like it never happened. On the contrary, you acknowledge what happened. You feel that pain. And then you ask God to carry it for you. You ask God to help you lay it down. And let us remember, I think we're quick to forgive, forget this. God will mete out justice. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament and the New Testament, vengeance is his. Our God is sovereign. He is enthroned in the heavens. He sees everything and he will make all things new and he will make all things right. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't seek justice here and now we should. That is also a biblical imperative, but let's be seeking it from a place of grace, knowing, acknowledging that God Vengeance is God, not our own. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So let's trust the Lord to make things right. Let's abide in Jesus and keep in step with the Spirit. Remember the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do those fruits describe the way you behave toward those who disagree with you or those who have wronged you? And I have to ask myself that. And I think the answer is no, I need the spirit to help me with that. Okay. So those are some spiritual truths to keep in mind. So here are some practical truths to keep in mind as we think about how to engage and combat cancel culture. I really admire, and I learn so much from Miroslav Volf. He is a professor of theology and director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale University, and I love reading what he writes. Wolf was born in Croatia. He grew up in the former Yugoslavia, and his family endured various hardships um, and various wrongs, of course, growing up in that context. Wolf himself shares frequently and deeply about how those hardships shaped him and his faith. So I recently heard a podcast where he shared about forgiveness and his own experience forgiving those who have harmed his family. And I'll link that podcast in my show notes. But here are some helpful points that Wolf made that I have been chewing on ever since listening to that. Here, of course, first, it goes without saying, forgiveness is very hard. It is an arduous process. And Wolf reminds us that you don't give forgiveness once. (laughs) You give it and then you take it back. 
and then you have to give it again. It must be a practice. It's not a one and done situation. It's got to be a practice. It's a way of life. It's a discipline. It's a spiritual discipline. Wolf reminds us that you can't wait for the feeling. Forgiveness is not an emotion. It is an action. Emotions will typically follow, but it's a Holy Spirit-empowered act of releasing someone from the wrongs they have inflicted on you. And I really appreciate this one. Forgiveness is not clean. It is very messy. It's an ongoing process. Very seldom does someone get to sit down with someone who has wronged them and say, okay, let's really delineate and agree on the ways you have wronged me. And then let's really agree on the specifics of that and how you're specifically sorry for these things and how you're going to repay them or how I'm going to forgive you. Um, You know, it's a messy situation where where you're just having to handle internally um, this lack of agreement between you and the wrongdoer and giving yourself over to forgiveness. But forgiveness allows you and me to turn toward the future, to not be held by the past. I like how Wolf put that. He put this, he said, unforgiveness is really when our thoughts are colonized by the past. So when we are unforgiving, we will always be looking back. We will always be looking back at how we were wronged and we will be unavailable for what's happening in the present or in the future. Forgiveness allows us, Wolf says, to transcend preoccupation with the self. So here we see that culture of self. We aren't forgiving because we are preoccupied with ourselves. But forgiveness allows us to transcend that preoccupation. Of course, we have been injured, but extending forgiveness is going to actually be good for ourselves. So here's another practical truth. Forgiveness is healthy. Now, this podcast that I was listening to included a discussion between Wolf and Yale psychologist Lori Santos. She hosts a podcast called The Happiness Lab, where she investigates what makes people happy. And she says, forgiveness leads to our happiness. So those who are able to forgive reap some physical rewards. There's a reduction in cardiac stress. There's better sleep. There's improved immune function and less fatigue. There's also a mental payoff. Those who forgive um, see a decrease in depression. They see a decrease in emotions like anger and an increase in emotions like hope and compassion and even self-confidence. So forgiveness, of course, is a gift that you give others, but it's also a gift that you give to yourself. Like so many things in the Christian life, by giving, you end up receiving. So as we engage the question, what are we going to do with cancel culture? And I think this is true about anything we talk about. You and I are not really probably going to change the world, right? We're not going to um, cause change on a huge scale, but we can make a difference in our own sphere of influence. And after all, you and I are only really responsible for ourselves, for the way that we conduct ourselves and abide in Christ in our own communities. So we might not change the world or a nation or even a corporation or even a whole sphere of society but we can change our little corner of the world. So thinking of cancel culture just on a broad scale, like thinking of governments or organizations or corporations or celebrities, you know, I don't think there's really a prescription here, how you want to handle um, a specific entity. If you want to stop buying from them or stop watching their show or stop supporting them, you know, that's really up to you. The good news is the Holy Spirit lives in you. So as he lives in you, you can call on him and pray, ask him to help you think through how to handle each situation, how you want to steward your voice, your money, your time, 
where do you want to pour yourself out? And maybe for some listeners, you know, some things will be worth it. You will feel a calling to maybe start a movement or start some sort of um, situation where you are involving others, calling something out publicly, but maybe not, you know, we've, we just each have to decide where, how we want to steward our lives when it comes to those bigger situations of cancel culture. But what I'm really wanting to get at is how do we as believers handle cancel culture inside the church and inside our families? You know, the church, you don't, whether it's the the family in the church or the family that you're born into or adopted into, you don't pick those people, right? We are unnatural family. We are um, sort of put together. It's not something that we've chosen, but we are put, we are together in Christ or together biologically or together in family. And so things don't always go super smoothly. We haven't picked one another based on, you know, things that we love and things that we're passionate about. We've been plunked down together in the same family. And I think that's why there are so many one another commands in scripture, so many places where the Lord calls us to love one another, to bear up with one another, to extend grace to one another throughout scripture. I think in the church in this moment in cancel culture, where the secular view of justice has really infiltrated our churches, we are so quick to call disagreements heresy or false teaching. We're so quick to make tertiary issues primary issues, meaning things that are not primary, things that are sort of second, third, fourth, fifth on the list of what really matters. We put them up as number one. And we call those who disagree with us false teachers or heretics. And that's just not true. The umbrella under which Christians live is a large umbrella. There are many places where we can disagree. There are going to be Christians in heaven who see see things so differently from myself and from you, that view things so differently here on earth, whether it's race or education, gender roles, life issues. We are a diverse population and your specific views Um, under the umbrella of Christianity might not match your siblings in Christ. We're going to show up in heaven and be so surprised to see some people there. I think it's important to acknowledge that it's so many times that we, when we are offended, when somebody inside the church sort of pokes at one of our idols, something that maybe we haven't identified as an idol, we are quick to write that person off. We are quick to cancel them, maybe not verbally and maybe not outwardly, but in our heart. And so I think an important exercise for you and me is to ask ourselves to pray and ask the Lord to show us, who is it that's really offending me? And why is it that I want to quickly label them as a false teacher or not a believer or as a fool? What idol is it in my heart that maybe that brother or sister is poking? So in the, inside the church, I think brothers and sisters, it just it goes without saying this is throughout scripture, love one another, bear up with one another, forgive each other, be quick to reconcile, be quick to forgive. And then of course, with our loved ones, these are true as well, whether it's in our families or our extended families or just our communities, our neighborhoods. You and I don't have permission to exit these relationships. These are fellow image bearers who are precious to the Lord, cherished in the sight of God. We don't have permission to write these people off. Jesus bled for these people. It is not okay for us then to... um, pridefully say, no, they're not worth our time. We are called and required by the Lord to consider others better than ourselves, to lay ourselves down, to walk in humility, to be second, to be last. Reconciliation really is our calling. It is not an option. We are called to be reconcilers. We are called to live at peace with everyone. 
this kind of behavior, this calling from scripture is so countercultural, isn't it? This sounds nothing like the current age that we live in. It could not be more countercultural. But to live in a way that is forgiving and gracious and others-centered is winsome. It's life-giving. And this, I believe, is the medicine that our culture needs, our culture that is sick and tired from demanding arbitrary justice, demanding that things be done the way they want. This particular way of living, cancel culture, is exhausting and it's making us sick. But to live out a biblical ethic of extending grace and forgiveness and not canceling, but rather reconciling, that will be a warm and winsome medicine for our age. I know it seems impossible. You know, I think about some of the wrongs currently happening in our culture that have happened over the ages. And of course it feels impossible, but I do feel inspired and encouraged by some amazing examples we have in history. Of course, it's easy to think of Martin Luther King. He was so effective in the civil rights movement because he operated from a place of seeking reconciliation. Now, this does not mean by any means that Martin Luther King was not seeking justice. He absolutely was seeking justice. He was not ignoring wrongs. Quite the opposite. He called out the wrongs, but then he sought to build bridges. He was unwilling to forge hatred and was only willing to forge reconciliation. Of course, I think of Corey Ten Boom, who forgave her Nazi captors, her Nazi tormentors after World War II. Indeed, she forgave the very guard who was responsible for her sister's death. She was unwilling to forge hatred. She was unwilling to cancel. But instead, following the example of Christ, she laid herself down and extended forgiveness. I think of the way Rwanda as a nation has rebuilt since the horrors of their genocide back in the 1990s. Rwanda has pursued a very intentional, very purposeful path of acknowledging wrongs and then forgiving them. Of course, these are just a few examples, and they are a supernatural model for all of us. We need God to help us with those. These are not acts that we can um, carry out by our own human will and intention. I think we are quick in this moment to think that it's not possible, that it's not healthy, that forgiveness is not in our best interest, that forgiveness is somehow regressive. But that is not true. That is a lie, and that is contrary to Scripture. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who grew up as a black South African under the horror of apartheid, says this, without forgiveness, there is no future. And I think those words are prophetic and true and, um, and a word for you and me. Those words are true for our wider culture, as well as our smaller churches, our families, our schools, our neighborhoods, our communities. Cancel culture is a dead end. But the way of Jesus, the way of forgiveness is what is future oriented. That's what will bring life. Let's hold out that life to one another. Let's love our enemies. Let's seek reconciliation, even at the cost of laying down our very own lives. This is countercultural, but it's what we're called to. And by the spirit of God, with the direction of the word of God, and with the help of the people of God, you and I can do this. Thank you for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.